All right, you guys ready? We're going to jump right in today, not a big introduction. If you have a Bible, we're going to be in Mark chapter 10. If you have a Bible, Mark chapter 10. If you need a Bible, just slip your hand up. There's an usher in the back. I'd love to come and bring one of these up to you. For the better part of this year, we've been studying in the gospel of Mark, kind of going uh, through uh, verse by verse, kind of getting all the way through. And uh, today we're going to be in Mark chapter 10. And this is a, a tough passage. In fact, this is probably one of the most ignored, uh, commonly ignored passages throughout the entire Bible. And uh, I have to admit, it, it, it's a tough one. And, and there was this, this weight that hit me this week because it's, it, it's tough. It's tough. But I want to be, be clear as we get ready to, to, to read this today. I want to be clear that this is not me speaking. This is not pastor speaking. This is not, uh, this is not Restoration Church speaking. This is not Dana Kalavig speaking. This is not Jim Herring speaking. This is God's word. This is God speaking. And, and, and we've just been singing about God's love for us. We sing these wonderful words about the way that God feels about us. That God, he's a good, good father. And a good father knows what his kids needs. And who are we? We are loved by him. And if we understand that this is the character of who God is, if we understand this is who God is, then we have to understand that what he's given us, even though it might be hard, is something that we need to, to listen and lean in and embrace. So, knowing the heart of Jesus, let's get ready to read God's word. Mark chapter 10, we're going to read verses 1 through 12. Uh, they'll also be up on the screen. You can follow along up here or uh, follow along in your Bible. And it says this, and Jesus left there and he went to the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan and crowds gathered to him again. And again, as was his custom, he taught them. And the Pharisees came up in order to test him. They asked, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? And he answered them and said, what did Moses command you? And they said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. And Jesus said to them, because of your hardness of heart, he wrote this he wrote you this commandment. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. And in the house, disciples asked him again about this matter. And he said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another, commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. And that is God's word for us today. Would you pray with me? God, we want to be sensitive to your leading, sensitive to your, your guidance. God, we want to seek your presence with us today. God, as we talk about issues that can sometimes be very personal, and, and there can often be pain and, and hurt and heartache involved in it. God, I pray that you would, would have your spirit and your presence rest on us today. That, God, you would give us an understanding of, of what it is that you want to get, get through to us today. God, I pray that as we begin to look at this subject of, of, of your view on marriage and divorce, that, God, you would help us to embrace your view. That we wouldn't embrace anybody else's view, but we would embrace your view. God, I pray that those who this becomes a sensitive subject, God, I pray that your grace would be bestowed upon them today. I pray, God, that they would see the hope that you offer through the cross. But God, more importantly, I pray that we would see your view of marriage and divorce today, God. We love you. We praise you. We plead for your presence with us now. In Jesus' name, amen. 
I think one of the reasons why this is probably one of the most commonly ignored sections of Scripture in the Bible is because we, we have this idea that things are different today. You know, Jesus wrote this and said this a long time ago, and things are just different today. And so as we start out and, and look at God's view on marriage and divorce, I thought, why don't we go back and look at the way things were in Jesus' day and what they were dealing with and the way things are now, the way things we deal in our society. So back then, there was a great controversy uh, over the Jewish rabbis, over the Jewish teachers and preachers and theologians over what are the grounds for divorce. See, in Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy chapter 24, Moses had wrote, wrote this, and he said, when a man takes his wife, takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds, he finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, he writes her a certificate of divorce. So God, long ago through Moses, through the Mosaic law, which is what Jesus and those Pharisees were under and those rabbis, they, the Mosaic law granted and regulated divorce under the grounds that if the man found some indecency in his wife, that he could divorce her. So the, the debate became on what does indecency mean? What, is the, what, what does that actually mean? What is some kind of indecency? There's two schools of thoughts. There's one school of thought by a rabbi, by a teacher, by the name of uh, Shemai. And he interpreted this idea of some indecency to be dealing with sexual immorality. So if, if, if a husband was married to his wife and she had adultery, she had some sort of extramarital, extramarital sexual relationship, then he could legally divorce her. And that was the only grounds for divorce, according to Shemai. But there was another ra- rabbi by the name of uh, Hillel. And he taught that indecency meant anything that displeased the husband. So the husband could look and say, anything that displeases me. So if you, if you burn my dinner, that displeases me, and I can divorce you because you burnt my dinner. That would mean that if you wore your hair down, and I didn't like your hair down, that displeases me, so I could divorce you. That meant that if you spoke, uh, if you spoke disrespectfully of his parents... Ladies, you could be divorced for speaking ill of your mother or father-in-law. Let that be a warning to you today. And this is he also said, if you could be heard yelling from one house away, then that would be indecency and you could then be divorced. It gets a little bit worse. Sometimes later, sometime later, there was another rabbi by the name of Akiva who built on what Hillel taught. And he added... By that saying, displeasing your husband also included the situation where if your husband found a woman who he found more attractive, that the wife would be displeasing. So he could divorce her to find someone who is more pleasing to his eye. So this is a situation in Jesus' time. You've got two different rabbis with two different teachings, and there's this debate on who's correct. Does indecency, does that mean sexual immorality? Or does it mean anything that makes a husband uh, upset? What is the, 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 the issue here? And so these rabbis come to Jesus and they ask him this question. Now, what about our day? What do we make of marriage and divorce? Statistically speaking, the United States, if a young couple gets married, they have a 40% chance of ending up in divorce in their marriage. 40%. That's four out of 10 marriages will end in divorce. You know, as, as Christians, as a church, sometimes we want to decry the, the immorality around us and say, well, that's just the world we live in, and they're all heathens, you know? And, and we say, what a terrible world we live in. 
But did you know that divorce rate among professing Christians is just about the same, if not even higher, than the people around us, than the general population? This is the society in which we live in. Now, let me just, let me just give this word of encouragement. If, if, if you are actively involved in a church, if you are engaged in a local body of Christ, that divorce rate plummets, plummets, at least in half, if not more. Let that be my plug-in to get plugged into the church and get involved here. But you see, divorce in our day has become so widely accepted I mean, there's, there's actually a Christian counselor by the name of Larry Crabb who began to, to write and to say, what is the cause? Why has why divorce become so commonplace in our society? And this is what he said. He said, we have become so conditioned to measuring the rightness of what we do by the quality of emotion it generates inside of us. That because of that quality of emotion, we've got a new version of ethics that has been developed. Fulfillment has taken on greater urgency and value than obedience. He said, how we feel, how we feel in the moment has taken a greater priority than obedience to what God has said and to the standards that we should follow on. And what a tragedy. What a tragedy. The elevation of our own fulfillment, of our own happiness above God's word, reduces God's word to nothing more than some optional guidebook that we can follow when we like what it says. See, when we put our, our, our own happiness, when we put our own ideas above what God's word teaches, then what we're doing is we're taking the gospel of Jesus Christ, we're taking our biblical Christianity, heck, we're even taking, we're even taking the, our, our understanding of God himself and we're diminishing it. We're replacing our understanding of the gospel and what the Bible teaches us to this idea of moralistic, therapeutic deism. We're taking what God's word says to be good and right and we're replacing it with this moralistic, therapeutic deism. I'll tell you what moralistic, therapeutic deism looks like. It looks like this. We all believe in God. We believe there's a God. That's easy. That's where you get the deism. And, and we believe that God wants us to be good and nice people, right? That's the moralism. Yes, God wants us to be good and nice people. And we, we, we think that God wants us to be happy. I mean, God, that's what he wants. He wants us to be happy. And so there's the therapeutic portion of it. So you have this God who wants you to be good, who wants you to be happy, and that's it. And so God's word no longer becomes the standard because now we have our own idea, this moralistic therapeutic deity of what God is and what God is about. And so we get confused and we open up God's word and it doesn't make sense to us because it's different. And so when we have that idea, we begin to diminish God's word and we don't have to listen to God's word because it doesn't fit with what we want to believe about God. So I'll be honest, God is not sitting up in heaven. He's not pacing back and forth. He's not biting his fingernails, worried about whether or not you and I are happy. God, I don't think is necessarily concerned about your happiness. Now, if you're married, I hope you're happy in marriage. A happy marriage is so much better than an unhappy marriage for sure. But I don't think God is necessarily concerned about our happiness. I think more important to God is our obedience. More important to God is our obedience. 
The prophet Samuel said in 1 Samuel 15, he said, God desires obedience more than actual worship itself. What God wants from us is obedience. So that's the situation we find ourselves in. That's the issue that Jesus and and the people in his day were dealing with. And this is the issue that you and I are dealing with in our day. Let me just be clear with you. Let me put all of my cards out on the table today. Let me tell you what I want to get accomplished through this message. One, One goal. One goal and that's it. I want us to embrace God's view on marriage and divorce. Now, I understand this is going to rub against maybe the way that we've been brought up, the way our society says we're supposed to believe. And I'm going to encourage you, I'm going to plead with you to please listen and understand and embrace God's view on marriage and divorce. Let's look at this. Let's read a couple of these verses, starting in verse 1. It says, And Jesus left there, and he went to the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan, and the crowds gathered to him again. And again, as was his custom, he taught them. And the Pharisees came up in order to test him. They asked, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? Jesus answered and said, what did Moses command you? They said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and send her away. See, the author of this book, Mark, he's very careful to point out why the Pharisees came up and asked him this question. They weren't really curious what the answer. They came up to test him. Because if Jesus, if he answered with the liberal rabbi, then they could say, Jesus, you're not holding enough to, to God and his, his, his righteousness. And if Jesus, if he sided with a conservative rabbi, they would say, well, Jesus, you're not loving enough and you're not falling enough on this side. And so they were trying to, to test him, to trip him up to where they could use his words against him. So they say, Jesus, is it cool for us to divorce? Because this is what Deuteronomy 4, this is what Moses said. So the question for us becomes, what is God's view on marriage and divorce? And what we're going to see is in Jesus' response, he's going to teach us three things. Three things that give us an understanding of God's view on marriage and divorce. The first thing that Jesus is going to teach us about marriage is that marriage is God's design, not man's. Marriage is God's design, not man's design. This is important for us to understand. Because if marriage was a man-made institution then we decide what the purpose of marriage is. If, if marriage was our idea, then we can redefine marriage. We can give marriage any purpose, any meaning that we want to it, and we decide what marriage is all about. So we decide what the guidelines are. We decide all those things. But if God is the designer of marriage, then God sets the standard for what marriage is about. Then God is the one who sets the boundaries and those guidelines. So here, what Jesus is going to do is to state the, case, state the case that he is the designer of marriage. He's going to take these Pharisees all the way back, all the way back to the very beginning of humanity, to the, the, the creation story, Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. He says in verse 6, he says, But from the beginning of creation, and then Jesus is going to quote from Genesis chapter 1, he says, God made them male and female. That's Genesis 1, verse 27. Jesus quotes it from the very beginning. <coughs> then he quotes from Genesis chapter 2, and he says, in verse 7, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. That's from Genesis chapter 2, verse 24. So they are joined, so they are no longer two, but one flesh. Well, therefore God has joined together. Let no man separate. See, Jesus 
is going to say God's the designer of marriage. And he's going to go back and he's going to give us two, emphasize two facts about marriage in God's design, the way that God established it to be. The first thing he's going to emphasize is that marriage is supposed to be an intimate relationship, a very intimate and close relationship. That's where he says, two shall become one flesh. That is an intimate relationship. See, when you and your spouse, when you stand at the altar, when you stand there at the altar, you cleave together. You become one flesh. God binds you together. The pastor, the pastor doesn't bind you together to become one flesh. You and your spouse, you don't bind each other. Your parents don't bind you together. That's not the way it works. The justice of the peace doesn't bind you together. God, with marriage as his design, and as the designer, as the architect of marriage, he takes two people and he forms them into one. This is the miracle of marriage. This is what it means when Jesus says, when, 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 God, when it says what God has joined together, it means that he's taking two people and joining them together. Marriage carries the deepest intimacy in any earthly relationship. Deeper intimacy than you will ever experience with any friend, with, with any coworker, with any sibling, with any parent yourself. I mean, I, I think about my own life. I think about, I think about my kids. When, when each of my kids were born, we've got five kids. And I can think about the moment that those kids came out, the moment you hold those kids in your arms for the first time, and there's this miraculous bonding that happens right then and right there. You're like, this is my own flesh and blood. This is my child. And there just becomes this, this intimate, close relationship. And as my kids have got older, our relationship has continued to bond. And we've gotten closer and closer. And I love my children, but we are not one flesh. We are not one flesh. God designed me to be one flesh only with my wife. And that is the most intimate relationship that any of us will ever experience is through marriage, through that marriage relationship. And the second thing that Jesus is going to emphasize about marriage is that he's going to talk about the permanence of marriage, how permanent marriage is. He says in verse 7, he says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother, and he shall hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This word hold fast means to, to cleave, means to, to join, means to submit. It's a very strong word in the original Greek. It means to uh, literally to be bound permanently together. To be bound permanently together. So in verse 9, Jesus adds some commentary to what God has already said. And he says, well, therefore God has joined together. Let no man separate. You see the, the permanence that God has established marriage to be about? There is no thought of divorce ever. God's original design was a monogamous, intimate, enduring marriage. So this brings us to a couple of questions that we feel, I feel we have to ask. I mean, why does God create one flesh out of a man and woman? And why is that one flesh never to break apart? Really, it goes beyond that question. We have to ask this question, why did God design marriage in the first place? What is the purpose of God's design for marriage? What's going to happen is we're going to look in, into something that, that Apostle Paul wrote in Ephesians chapter 5. He says, he says in Ephesians 5, he says, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be united with to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I am talking about Christ and the church. 
Anytime you see that word mystery in the Bible, especially in the New Testament, it's referring to something that has been previously hidden, something that we haven't quite known, but now the the reason is going to become revealed. It's going to become known to us now. Paul, he quotes from Genesis 2 about God creating and designing the first marriage, and then he calls it a mystery, and now he's going to reveal why the purpose behind it. He says the meaning is profound and explains the whole purpose of marriage. He says the whole thing about marriage is a picture of God's unbreakable, never-ending, always and forever, unalterable covenant of love for us, the church through Jesus Christ. You see, those of us who are believers, who are Christians, who have placed our faith in Jesus Christ, we become part of what's called the Big C Church, the global church. We become a part of the body of Christ. If you are a Christian, regardless if you're part of this church or not, you are part of the body of Christ. And what he's going to say is marriage is a picture of how God feels about us. That he loves us so much that no matter how much sin we've done, no matter what bad we've done, Jesus loved us enough to send his son, Jesus Christ, to to make a way for us to be in relationship with him. He says this is the never-ending love that Jesus, that God has for us, that he made a way for us to be in relationship with him. Marriage, then, is a picture of that relationship between God and us, that God will not turn his back on us. When we surrender in faith to him, he will be with us forever. This is the picture of marriage. Now, the world, the world is going to tell you something different. And even our own mind begins to tell us something different. It'll say, marriage is all about your happiness. Marriage is all about how making you feel good. And so, but that's not what God says. Again, that's not what God's, God's word does not say your marriage is about your happiness. The primary purpose of why God created marriage is to display to the world his unbreakable love for us, for his church, for his people. And so by the way that we love our spouses, the, the, we, the way that we love them and we forgive them and we walk through life with them and we become intimate with them, we become permanent with them, we display to the world the love that God has for every one of us. It's unbreakable. It never ends. It never fails. So the first thing that Jesus is going to teach us about marriage is that marriage was God's design, not ours. The second thing, the second thing that Jesus is going to teach us about marriage and divorce, and that's that divorce is always a result of sin. Divorce is always a result of sin. Look what Jesus said in verse 5. Verse 5, Jesus said to them, because of your hardness of heart, Moses wrote you this commandment. Jesus is drawing the Pharisees back to Moses' word. And he's giving them clarification. He's interpreting what Moses wrote for them many years ago. He's revealing the purpose why Moses wrote in Deuteronomy and permitted divorce. Divorce wasn't commanded. It was permitted Very simply, it was permitted because man's heart was hardened that Moses allowed divorce. We begin to say, well, what what, what is a hardened heart? What is a hardened heart? What does that mean? What does having a hardened heart mean? There are many occurrences all throughout the Bible about this hardened heart. We are warned again and again and again about having a hardened heart. In fact, there's a story in the Old Testament about, about where Moses is sent to the Pharaoh. And he's, he's sent to the Pharaoh to deliver God's message. And you've seen the movie. And Moses comes up to Pharaoh and he says, let my people go. I mean, you guys have seen the movie. Some of us have. Let my people go. 
And, and if in the biblical text in Exodus, it says that when Moses or when Pharaoh heard that word, that he hardened his heart. This means that he determined to handle things his own way. He determined to respond with the natural inclination of his own flesh. To do what he felt like doing in that situation. To handle it himself. To ignore God. Not to seek advice from God. But to do things the way that he wanted to do it. With no concern for what God would have to say. Having a hard heart is when you and I, when we decide we don't care what the right thing to do is. We're going to do it how we want to do it. We're going to do it how it makes us feel better. This is the hardening of the heart. When we determine to do something, to handle it ourselves, not to pay any attention to what God reveals about it, that is us hardening our hearts. And this is what was going on in those marriages in Israel way back then. And so Jesus says, Moses permitted divorce because of the hardening of heart, because of your sin, because of the sin of the people. Moses permitted divorce. He allows it. It wasn't part of his perfect plan from the very beginning. I mean, notice divorce is never commanded. Never once do you see divorce commanded in scripture. It is always permitted because God sees the sinfulness of our hearts and sinfulness of those who have done wrong to us. And even when we find ourselves innocent victims in a relationship, the reason is because of sin. Divorce, let's be clear, divorce is a tragedy. It always is painful. It leaves hurting people in the wake. Let's be honest about that. So Jesus says divorce is always a result of sin. Question is, it happens. God permits it, but how does God view it? Prophet Malachi wrote in the Old Testament, He wrote in Malachi chapter 2. He said, Didn't the Lord make you one with your wife? In body and spirit you are his. And what does he want? Godly children from your union. So guard your heart. Remain loyal to the wife of your youth. Here's what he says. For I hate divorce, says the Lord, the God of Israel. To divorce your wife is to overwhelm her with cruelty, says the Lord of heaven's armies. So guard your heart. Do not be faithful. Do not be unfaithful to your wife. See, it doesn't say God just has a problem with divorce. It says that God hates divorce. When the word hate is used in the Old Testament, it is always referring to an enemy, either an enemy of God or an enemy of Israel. So when God says he hates divorce, he says divorce is his enemy. He hates it that much. Well, why was God, why would God hate divorce? Again, when we picture, when we have that picture of what marriage is all about, what does marriage represent? I represent his relationship with us, his covenant with us, that he will never back out on us. He will never quit on us. He will never turn his back on us. We understand that's the picture of marriage. And when we divorce, we are ripping that picture apart and saying, maybe that picture isn't true. Maybe God doesn't really love us like we think he does. Divorce is ripping that picture apart. So when we're ripping the covenant that he has with us apart, yeah, that's a big deal. That's a big deal. When we are not saying, when we, when we, when we, when we're, when we're breaking apart the picture that he created to, to tell people the story of how he feels about us, that's a big deal. That's a big deal. He hates when his story, when his picture gets torn apart. He sends a message that God's, of, that God's covenantal love for us can end. It can be broken. And that's not the message that God wants anybody to hear. 
So first thing we learned is that marriage is God's design. Second thing we learned is that divorce is always a result of sin. And third thing that Jesus is going to teach us is that divorce is only permitted for the, for the circumstance of sexual immorality. The only time that, that, that divorce is, is, is permitted is for the circumstance of sexual, sexual immorality. Now, when we look at verses 10 through 12, it's not necessarily clear. Show those verses 10 through 12 on there. Verses 10 through 12 says, And in the house, the disciples asked Jesus again about this matter, and he said to them, Whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. It almost seems like Jesus is not permitting divorce at all. It seems like Jesus is saying, If you divorce and you remarry, you're committing adultery. And so, is Jesus, is he really permitting divorce for any reason? But in the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew tells the same exact story of the Pharisees coming to tempt Jesus and to test him. And, and, and he says something a very, uh, very little bit different than what Mark says. He says in Matthew chapter 19, verse 9, he says, I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. Now, at a casual reading of those two verses, those two passages, the one from Mark and the one from Matthew, we can say, well, didn't God's word just contradict himself? I mean, didn't Mark say nothing about sexual immorality? And didn't Matthew say something? So, I mean, there, how can we trust God's word? It's contradicting itself. Let me tell you, it's not a contradiction. It's not a contradiction. Before you conclude that there's discrepancies, let me just paint the picture for you. Under Mosaic law, again, what Moses wrote many, many, many years ago, this is what Jesus and those Pharisees lived under. Under Mosaic law, Adultery was punishable by death. If you committed adultery on your spouse, you could be sentenced to death for that act. So undoubtedly, nobody would have doubted that adultery would have been a reason for divorce. I mean, either you're going to die or you're going to be divorced. I mean, it's kind of, so, so Mark almost makes it as an assumption that people will believe it. Because again, that was the law that he understood. If you commit adultery, you have the ability to be sentenced to death. And so divorce, death, divorce seems like a better option than death, if you ask me, you know. And so that's where the difference becomes. Again, I want you to see, God permitted divorce due to marital unfaithfulness. He didn't command it. Divorce is never mandatory. It's always permitted because of sin. So marriage, marriage is God's design. It's not man's. He sets the boundaries for what it's about. Divorce, divorce is always a result of sin. And thirdly, the only time divorce is permitted in Scripture is due to sexual immorality. Question is, though, what do we take away from this message? What are we supposed to walk away from? How are we supposed to apply this message to our lives today? Once again, my only hope for every one of us in here today is that we would embrace God's view on marriage and divorce. This means that if you're a single person in here today, if you're a young person, if you're someone who's about to get married, like Jason Webster, if you're a young, if you're a single person in here today, you need to make certain that God's view of marriage and divorce is your view on marriage and divorce. You need to take some time before you get married. You need to pray and get your mind wrapped around this. You need to know why God created marriage, what marriage is a picture of. 
Before you ever step into marriage, that relationship, you need to understand the way that God views it, the way that God created it. You need to ask God to change your heart and to give you his view of what marriage is about. Do not take this lightly. Do not take this lightly. Because the moment that you get married, the moment you marry another person, you become a picture of God's never-ending, unbreakable, always and forever love for his bride, for the church. That ought to just freak you out just a little bit. That you become the picture of the way that God feels about us. That should freak you out just a little bit. Single person, you also need to make certain, make certain that the person you marry also has that same view. Because I tell you, it will be devastating for you if you marry someone who doesn't have that view. And then when the going gets tough, when things become difficult, they get up and run. Say, well, that's not the way I view marriage. That's not the way they view it either. There's a movie called He's Just Not, a, not There's a movie called He's Just Not That Into You. And in that movie, there's a character. There's a character, and he asks this question. He asks, what if you meet the love of your life, but you're already, already married to somebody else? Should you just let that person pass you by? <laughs> that's a really good question, isn't it? I mean, if you're a non-Christian, that's a really good question. If marriage is all about your happiness, then that is a question you really need to ponder, and you really need to pursue. But if you are a believer... If you're going to embrace God's view on marriage, you understand why God created marriage and what it represents, then that's an absolutely ridiculous question. The love of your life is the person that you're married to. They are the love of your life. You are to spend the rest of your life displaying the love of Christ to them, no matter what comes along your path. Single people, make sure you have God's view on marriage and divorce. What if you're here today and you're already married? Let me ask you, is your marriage in good standing? Do you have a strong marriage? Praise God for that. Praise God for that. Thank him for it every day. Continue to work on your marriage to make sure it is sound. Today even, recommit yourself every day to your spouse. Recommit to them. I'm going to spend my life with you. I'm committed to you through the thick and the thin. Make this a daily habit. Because of what your marriage represents. If you're here today and your marriage is in trouble, let me tell you, I'm praying for you. Let me tell you, marriage at times can be very, very difficult. It can be overwhelming. There are some resources around you that we want to put in your hands. We want to walk alongside you. Because I tell you, it's never to the point that it's irreparable. Never to the point it's irreparable. Let me tell you, there's overwhelming evidence for your marriage. There's overwhelming evidence for you to fight for your marriage, even in the midst of sexual immorality. There's a whole book in the Bible that talks about it. This guy named Hosea, he's a prophet. God comes to him and says, Hosea, I want you to marry this woman, Gomer. By the way, she's a prostitute. So Hosea obeys God. He marries the uh, Gomer. What a, what a horrible name. What a horrible name. Men, single person, you know, Shelby, where are you at? Shelby, do not marry a girl named Gomer. That's just a bad name. Okay. That's another story. We could have a whole message about that, but we won't go there. So Hosea marries Gomer. And, and shortly after that, she goes and she starts cheating on him. She leaves him and she attaches himself to herself to another man and then another and another over and over, over again. 
Let me ask you, if you were Hosea's best friend, what would you tell him to do? Divorce her, man. Of course, divorce her. But that's not God's advice for him. God tells him to go after, to go after her again and again and again. To keep pursuing her. To try to win her heart no matter what. You know who Hosea represents in that story? He represents God. You know who his wife represents? You and I. You and I. See, I've cheated on God a thousand times with a thousand different lovers. Pursuing so many other things that I thought were more important to me than God. Pursuing myself, trying to make myself great. Every one of us, we can be found in that wife on pursuing so many other things rather than God. And God, as Hosea, keeps pursuing us. Keeps trying to win us back. Keeps trying to pull us back in. He never stops. Let me tell you what. If your marriage is in trouble, there is a lot worth fighting for. Please do not give up. Please do not give up. God has never left you. God has never left you. And, 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 and he will never leave you. And this is the kind of love, the kind of commitment that we're supposed to have to our spouse. What if you're in here today, though? You say, well, pastor, I've already screwed this up. Pastor, I've failed. Pastor, I've got the shame. Pastor, I've done this. You might be asking the question, is God angry with me? Have I, have I lost God's blessing on my life? No. No. You've not lost God's blessing and he's not angry with you. Thanks to Jesus Christ. Because in the book of Romans, the apostle Paul wrote, he wrote, wretched man that I am. Who will deliver me from this body of death? And he says, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. And this is what he says. There is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There is no condemnation now for those who are in Christ Jesus. If you have failed in this area, there is no condemnation for you. There is no condemnation for you if you are in Jesus Christ. God still loves you. God still values you. God still cherishes you. It doesn't matter what you've done. God still feels the same way about you. Probably one of my favorite verses in the Bible was also written by the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 8. He says, For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation, nothing in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God and Jesus Christ our Lord. I don't care what you've done. I don't care if you failed and how many times you failed. You are completely forgiven and loved by Jesus Christ and by this church. We love you. We accept you no matter what you have done. But what I want you to hear today, what I want us to see, is just because God's grace covers us, just because he forgives us, doesn't mean that we can willingly go and sin. We still have to come back and allow God's word to become our standard on marriage and divorce. And I'm asking every one of us in here today, whether you're a single person, 
whether you're a married person with a great marriage, whether you're a married person and your marriage is on the rocks, whether you have failed in this area before, I'm asking you today to ask God to help you embrace his view of marriage and divorce. Because we know what it represents. We know the picture of what it means. Would you pray with me? God, I pray for your presence right now. God, I pray for your presence in the hard times when it confronts what we want to believe about ourselves, confronts the way that we want to live our lives. God, I pray that as we look to your word, that we would allow your word to influence us, that we would submit ourselves, that we would bow down and we would worship you for who you are. Now, God, we would accept your word for what it says even when it fights against what we want to believe, even when it fights against what we uh, have believed in the past. God, I pray that you would help us to embrace this. God, I pray for these young people in here today that they would make this their standard. There'd be no deviation from it. That they would say, I understand exactly the way that God feels about this. And I'm going to live in submission to that. God, I pray for those in here who are single. Lord, I pray if marriage is on their horizon, God, that they would take that step because, God, it's something that you've made special and wonderful and amazing. God, I pray for those in here today whose marriages are strong. God, I pray that they would just worship you and thank you, that today they would recommit themselves again and again and again to their spouses to say, I love you. I will always be here for you. God, I pray for those, I know there are those in here whose marriages are in trouble who they're barely hanging on. God, I pray that you would wrap your your love around them, that you would remind them of how you feel about them, that you will never turn your back on them, that you will pursue them time and time and time again. And I pray, God, that they would begin to embrace your standard for marriage. That, God, they would say, hey, we're in a tough spot. Pastor, can you help me? Can you help us put some resources that we can begin to rebuild, that we can begin to to make our marriage centered upon you? God, I pray for the boldness to ask for help. And, God, I pray for those in here who've been affected by divorce. God, I know there's many of them. God, I pray that your grace would cover them. I pray, God, that they would know this is not the end. This is the beginning of what you're doing next. That, God, there's no condemnation for us. No matter how many times we've failed, that your grace covers us. But, God, I pray that we're willing to learn. I pray that we're willing to allow your word to influence us, to become our standard. God, even when it's hard. God, the gospel calls us to hard things. God, I pray that you would help us to embrace it. God, I love you. God, I feel over, overwhelmed. But I thank you for your grace. And I pray now that we can just have this opportunity to respond through worship, to praise you for who you are, to praise you that your love never ends. We ask this in your name.